Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So last time we were talking about this idea of conditioned inhibition. Basically, this is the idea that you can have a stimulus, in this case we're calling it A, and the notation always is you just put a minus after it. It's predicting the absence of something, and then the plus is predicting the presence of something. So that's excitatory conditioning. This is inhibitory conditioning. It's hard to see if something actually is inhibitory. You can, in certain situations, see it without doing one of these tests. Um, I know one of the things that, uh, if you look at you know birds when they're... When you get birds to, uh, when the CS is a, uh, is a light and the US is food, and overlap as you can see here, um, the birds will start pecking at the, at the little, it's called the key light, it's the size of a loony, okay? And, um, and you know, it lights up different colors, whatever. Now, usually it's a touchscreen, you get a touchscreen and you can change the color, you can do all kinds of neat stuff. But anyway, one of the things, in this case, you have a cage, right? Which I can actually draw this actual size, probably about that big. And then there's the key light here, okay? And then there's the feeder down here, which I'm not going to draw how the feeder works, it's an electromechanical device. Fine. So when the light comes on, and then eventually the feeder opens up, for a few seconds, the bird gets, gets the food, they start pecking. Now, if we had something that was really long, like a, a stimulus that was really long, instead of this, and let's say this is about, oh, I don't know, five seconds, and that's about five seconds of access, if we instead made it like this, so and then five, so let's see, what's, what's our scale here? So it's five, 10, 15, 20, about 30 seconds. We have a 30 second light, and then five seconds of food. Around second 28, the thing opens. So when you get around second 28, that's excitatory conditioning. The, the bird's going to start pecking. But what does the start of the light coming, what is light coming on actually predicting? What do you think? Predicting it's going to be a damn long time until you get fed. Right? It's predicting there's not going to be food for a while. So, in fact, at the beginning of this, you can get this really sort of interesting biphasic kind of set of behavior where you get a lot of pecking here. Here, instead of getting pecking, you'll actually often get the bird. Let's go over. Try to put some put an eye on him where he won't be able to see the light. He'll actually often stand over at the other side of the, 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 the cage and he'll turn his head. Or he'll, I've seen them tuck their heads under their wing. I don't want to, it's disgusting, it's gross, it means I'm not going to get fed for a while. So you can actually see inhibitory conditioning there. The way you can do that, obviously, is you count, you just divide this up into two and you can video it or whatever and just watch how much time they spend here versus here. And they actually will, or when they turn away, right? Because it's, it's actually become almost a noxious stimulus because it's predicting I'm not going to be fed for a while. And remember, it lights up the whole chamber because it's dark in there. Lights up the whole chamber. Right? So that's what you could actually really detect inhibitory conditioning. But typically you can't. 
Uh, I did a project like that, oh god, ages ago. When did I do that? 1985, in a class. Used to be learning classes, everybody got their own animal and you could do experiments, but then it turned out that a lot of students don't care for animals very well. So, uh, not anymore. <laughs> but it was a neat little experiment we were in. There's another part to the experiment. That was discovered by Pavlov, so it wasn't like we were doing anything interesting. We added something, what at least I thought was kind of cool. At the end of it, of course, I was 19 years old. I don't think I knew what cool it was. Um, okay. Questions about that, about inventory conditioning? Now, you can also get, you always are going to get a response once you've done training to a CS, right? You get a CR to a CS. Now, just like with habituation, you're going to get generalization. So you actually end up with something where you can detect how much they're responding. You might do this with CER, you might do this with salivary commits, it doesn't matter. But if you've got your original, that marker blows. That's not a good marker. Let's back to my blue one. You got your originally uh, conditioned uh, stimulus, and then we're going to have amount of responding here on this axis. Again, that should be symmetrical. I don't does it look like it. <laughs> what is it? But it's supposed to be. You get this normal curve of responding. And you get less responding, the more dissimilar uh, the new stimulus is to the original condition stimulus. You can do this with light, some different shades of uh, color, which is a uh, a common enough thing to do, and it used to be very difficult to do because you had to get, you had to have these lights, you had to have all different, say, shades of green and blue, let's say, because you'd be going by the number of nanometers, you'd by wavelength. Now you just do it with a computer and you, you can actually tell it, the color that they, or you can do a sound, whatever, and do with, with the pitch. Set. So you get this nice generalized, what's called a generalization gradient, exactly like you do with habituation. So you can see sometimes the rules, and I think I've mentioned this, the rules that happen in habituation hold up in a lot of other kinds of learning. And evolutionarily, this makes a great deal of sense. Okay, questions about that? Basically introducing the topic here by throwing all kinds of stuff at you. You can also do sort of the opposite of generalization, which is discrimination. So what you do here is you train up two stimuli, a CS plus and a CS minus. Again, a CS plus predicts a stimulus. The CS minus predicts, the, uh, predicts a, sorry, uh, uh, a US. The CS minus predicts no US, lack of a US. The animal responds, gives a condition, condition response rather, to an, the S plus, not the S minus. So if we just change this diagram up here, That's going to be our CS plus. This is our CS minus. And then we can test, can they tell, basically you're testing, can they tell the difference? Can they discriminate between the two stimuli? Okay? So now if you test these two, you're going to get responding here, and you're not going to get any responding here if you've done it properly. And you'd actually get, uh, let's not get too complicated yet. You're not going to get any responding here, you're going to get some responding here. 
you know, just leave that word as well. I mean, it's, it's too early in the course for you to explain it. Like the thing I was thinking of. We'd be stuck here for 45 more minutes. We'll be explaining something. This comes back later on in the course. Let's just say that. Now, the thing is, this could get too difficult for you. So it could be too difficult for you. If I played a tone, you know how Dwayne does this work with the, with the, uh, with, with tones, and he, and he makes them change by a cent, which is one one hundredth of a hertz. I think that's right, of a cycle. That's hardly any change at all. And I bet you can't recognize that unless you probably have perfect pitch. Then maybe you can. Um, and it gets very difficult. In fact, Pavlov said that you would get what he called. When discrimination got too hard, you, the animal would become neurotic. So, and again, that may be a mistranslation from the Russian. I, I'm not really sure, but that's what Pavlov said. He said, look, what you're getting here, and you do get this kind of behavior where when the discrimination is too difficult, you actually will end up with an animal doing all kinds of funny, what we might want to call, well, well later in the course we'll call adjunctive behaviors. They'll, 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 they'll groom, they'll do all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with the experiment. They basically, it's too hard. Right? Okay. So, there's a few kind of ways, we, a few different ways we can do it. Uh, conditioning. A few different setups. So first, let's let's just I'll just drop this CS here. So there's a CS. Okay. Now the first thing we can talk about is what's called simultaneous conditioning. Simultaneous conditioning just means. get there is overlap in time between the CS and the US. In fact, that's the standard way it's done. I think we all have in our heads the idea that first the CS comes on, then it goes off, then the US comes on. That, that's actually not typically the case. Now, we can have a short delay. That's this interval here between the CS and the US. Okay, so this delay here is the ISI or the interstimulus interval. So that can be either short or long. And you're going to say, Dave, what's short and long? And my answer will be, one of them's shorter than the other one. Like, there's not really a set of definitions there. I think we would say eye blink is short, and we would certainly say that uh, page diversion is long, but it's more a matter of perspective. The thing is, with very long delay conditioning, kind of like we have over here, you will get this weird temporal thing where at the beginning you've got... And it's inhibitory, and later it's excitatory. Now, the one that we actually, so certain long, the one that we tend to think of is the one that we're wrong about, by the way. As soon as the CS goes off, then the US comes on. That's called trace conditioning. This doesn't work that well. It'll, it works as, doesn't work as well as simultaneous conditioning. It will work but it's not very well. Not nearly as well. You don't get nearly as strong a response. Acquisition takes longer, etc. Right? Yeah, then there's backwards conditioning. 
it should be overlapping. Sorry. <coughs> so the US comes first, then the CS comes on. You might you shouldn't be surprised that this hardly works very well. Because <laughs> what's the what's the CS predict? It predicts the US as it just is over. Doesn't it? That's what it's predicting. It's not very useful. So this tells us again that contiguity alone does not does not is not the sufficient for learning. Not sufficient for learning. You need contingency, not just contiguity. So you shouldn't be surprised. In fact, again, as much as I, I sit here and always say, since there before, I'll say it again that you shouldn't try to get inside an animal's head. Just look at this from, again, a, a mechanism that's trying to predict the future. This is not going to do a very good job predicting the future. It's predicting the past, which is completely useless. Right? Oh, that means that's over. <laughs> I don't see, that doesn't help the animal. Well, it actually probably does, but it doesn't get excitatory conditioning. You probably get something inhibitory. Questions? Make sense? Now, the big thing really now is what, what, the seat, what, what the class conditioning system is doing is it's doing statistics. It's basically doing inferential statistics. It's trying to predict the future based on a sample. Like it really is. It's like a statistical computer, except it's up here. So, If you had this, CS minus, CS minus, CS minus, CS minus, this was the sort of, and you have this, CS plus, CS plus, CS plus, CS plus. Okay? This is the old, sort of old-timey version of a control group. This is sort of the old-timey version of a control group. But what's the animal learning here? Is it, you think it's learning nothing, okay? That's, and that's what people thought. So obviously that's wrong. <laughs> but that's what people thought for years, so don't feel bad. This is what people thought for years. This was the old version of a control group. What's the animal actually probably learning here? Because remember, nothing means the CS predicts absolutely nothing. Yeah. I can't help but think of... Uh... I've heard of the experiment with the pigeons when uh, there wasn't, wasn't any cue to get more food, and here it is. They, they turn around, the food came down, and they created, oh, if I turn around, food, there's going to be some, some food. So you think of superstitious behavior. Superstitious behavior. But this wouldn't do that, because remember, with, with classical conditioning, it doesn't matter what the animal does, it gets, it gets the stimulus, or in this case... It gets. It doesn't get a stimulus. What this actually, the animal's actually learning is the CS predicts a lack of something. It's getting inhibitory conditioning. It's not getting learning nothing. It's learning something. It's learning the CS predicts that nothing is coming. Oh, that actually means something. So what people call the Rescorla control procedure. Again, see Bob Rescorla, he just he's too smart. Is you give the animal random 
50% of the time, CS predicts something. 50% of the time, CS predicts a lack of it. Again, the animal is doing a correlation coefficient, basically. This is a correlation of negative 1. This is a correlation of positive 1. This is a correlation of 0. Here, the animal actually is learning that the plus, the US, is unpredictable. Isn't it? Again, this is so... Does everybody understand why that's the case? Right? Because there's as many pluses... I hope I did this properly. One, two, three, one... Yes. There's as many pluses as there are minuses. So the animal's actually learning that the U.S. is unpredictable. Therefore, it's learned nothing about the C.S. In the old-timey version of a control group, the animal's learning that the C.S. predicts a lack of... Of, of something. So it's the correlation of events that the animal is predicting. It's about, I think I've mentioned before, we can often we can think of learning almost like surprise. And you're going to learn the most when you're surprised. Right? First time you get a CS and a US, that's surprising. You learn a lot. Here, I've learned, oh, that predicts the U.S. Think of it moment to moment. The system has learned U.S. is predicted by C.S. Then it's learned, oh, no, it's not. That cancels that one out. Oh, sure it is. No, it's not. Sure it is. No, it's not. Now, those are all in order like that, I think, because I wanted to make sure that I had as many pluses as minuses. But you would do it that way. You would actually make it completely haphazard, but you'd make the correlation zero. And this is something, it's interesting because all these old experiments with these as control groups, it didn't affect every experiment, but affected some. Like the, 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 the interpretation of them. Okay. So basically what the animal is doing is comparing the probability of the U.S. given the C.S. with the probability of the U.S. given no C.S. I didn't say the animal was actually calculating these probabilities the way you and I do. I'm saying its nervous system is doing that. And it's representing the world that way. It's quite a bit different than Pavlov's idea of a, of a brain center. Right? It's more of a modern idea. Indeed, it's more of a cognitive idea, a representational idea. And in fact... If you take this to its logical extreme, there's nothing here about associating events. It's just conditional probabilities. It's not about stimulus, stimulus, or stimulus response. It's about two conditional probabilities. And the greater the difference between the two, the greater the conditioning. If there's no difference between the two, you get no condition. Now, this is a long. This is over the long term, more than the short term. So it's not like the animal is comparing what just happened now to what happened one trial ago. It's a constantly updated pair of conditional probabilities. Randy Gallistel, uh, who wrote the book *The Organization of Learning*. Which um, is a very dense book, and someone borrowed it from me, 
and I've never got it back. And I'm upset because I, it's a good book. And it's expensive. I don't want to buy a new one. And it's old, too, so I couldn't convince a publisher to say, yeah, I'm going to use it in a course, and they just send you a copy. <laughs> but it's from 1990, and there's no way anybody, eh, people might still use it. So look at it. It's tough. It's dense as hell. But he's got a model of, 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 of classical conditioning that's simply about probabilities. It's got nothing to do with associating stimuli. Do, do I buy that learning is simply that? It's got to do with associated events? I don't think I quite buy that, but I think that I'm pretty sure that the idea of the animal looking at conditional probabilities is true. What's going to happen here, though? So it's over the long term more than the short term. Right? It's over the long term more than the short term. Um, and by the way, it's, like I said here, it's a whole new take on how learning works. Now, that, when the animal's calculating, when its nervous system is calculating these two conditional probabilities, how's that going to work? I mean, are they, uh, are they doing the, 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 the calculations on the fly? Right? Or is it, does, it do, does it recalculate every time? I don't know the answer to that. The thing is, if it's doing the calculations on the fly, like sort of recalculating sorry, every time, then what it has, to, it has to do is it has to have a memory window. Because at some point, it can't remember every single thing that's happened in its life. Right? So some of the stuff has to just go away, which actually makes a great deal of evolutionary sense. Because the world may have changed in the last couple of days. Also, so that's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be constantly updating what, what these two probabilities are, but the animal then has to hold in memory these two probabilities. Right? Which one is it? It's more likely the one where they do the calculations and there's over a certain sort of set of... Uh, n trials each time, where n equals some number, instead of constantly keeping every single probability stored up there. Right? Okay. Questions on that? Talk about a couple of things here. Um, as you can see, I'm just introducing all this stuff, the theoretical stuff, which will probably, yeah, we'll be able to get some of that. Is where it gets a lot more interesting. Higher order conditioning. So what we've done so far, CS to US, we call that first order conditioning. Okay? Good. Now, we could do this. We'll call that CS1. That's second order conditioning. And then what we're going to do is we train CS2 up in a separate situation with the US. And then we test to see what CS1, what you get with CS1. And in fact, it works pretty well. You still get a response. So that's called second-order conditioning. If we've got a CS1, a CS2, and a CS3, that's third-order 
Then there's fourth, etc. Uh, the most I've ever seen in a paper, I believe, was ninth order. It worked with rats. I don't know. They must have run out of stimuli. Right? Typically, though, you start to get to third, fourth, fifth order. It starts to get a little silly. <coughs> right? But that's what we're talking about there. Okay, questions about that? Sort of, a, it's a different uh, pr uh, preparation. I'm sort of pushing the limits. Isn't that the work of the last slide? Um, sensory preconditioning is a weird phenomenon. You take the stimulus and you present it to the animal in its home cage, not in the experimental chamber. So you've got rats, and you're going to have them, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to play a poem, and then give them food, uh, and they, they, they learn very quickly when the tone comes on to run over the feet. It's, it's you know, something like that. But if you play them that tone in their home cage, they actually learn more quickly than if you hadn't played them that tone in their home cage. Now that actually doesn't make any sense because playing it in their home cage means that it either predicts nothing, which I guess is possible, or it predicts something happening in their home cage. And they don't get fed in there, by the way. You wouldn't, well, they do, but you, after the experiment, you, don't, you wouldn't do it while you were feeding them. That would screw up everything. So you're just giving them random sounds. And somehow, it makes them learn more quickly. Is it because they've learned to attend to the stimulus? Well, that doesn't make any sense because... Habituation would tell us they'd learn to ignore it because it has nothing, nothing happens. I have not seen a good mechanistic account of why sensory preconditioning happens. But it's a thing. Now, you can certainly use this outside the lab. Well, so classic conditioning is used in a lot of situations outside the, the Skinner box. Right? So you can get classic conditioning uh, used in, in, in clinical settings. Uh, your daily life is, 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 is full of, of, of conditioning. Um, it's, for example, well, first of all, your daily life is full of it. And notice this. This is the kind of thing that you will notice if you're Just paying attention to, to, to what's happening each day to you. You'll notice that there's a whole lot of conditioning going on. Just even simple things like a great example actually is uh, if you have uh, if, if you're dependent on caffeine. Right? How many people here have a headache before they have a cup of coffee in the morning? You wake up with a headache, right? A little bit of headache, a little stuffed up. Yeah. That's called caffeine dependence. I wouldn't worry. It's the most widely used drug in the world. And What if you don't drink caffeine and you do get to have one of those morning headaches? Then I think you should start drinking coffee. <laughs> uh, well, then you should see a doctor that's not me. <laughs> one of those you know, medical doctors, the ones that don't write a thesis. Um, so if you do, Tori, you said you do. I said I do. I usually wake up a little groggy, obviously, but also kind of stuffed up and a little achy. And it may be because I'm almost 50, but it also may just be because I've been drinking coffee since I was 12. And 
You drink, you have a couple sips of coffee, it goes away. Have you noticed, though, that when you start making the coffee, it goes away? When you, you literally can open a, you can look at a coffee maker and it'll work. That's classical conditioning. That's all that is. That's all that is. And in fact, it, which something that's very cool is caffeine caffeine's actually uh, clears your airway. A lot of um, anti-asthma, like the puffer things and that, they'll have a big load of caffeine in them. Because one of the things that does is it, it opens your airway. It's just something, it's a, it's a side effect of, of taking caffeine. So if, if you're stuffed up, if your nose is stuffed and you feel like uh, a bit of a cold, one of the ways that you can treat that is by drinking a cup of coffee. Right? It'll give you some relief from being congested. But the neat thing is, literally, just opening some coffee will do that. You'll feel your sinuses clearing a little bit. If you already drink coffee. It's not a case if you drink, if you uh, aren't a caffeine user, that's, that's probably not going to have the same effect because your body hasn't learned. You don't even been conditioned yet to the effects of caffeine. But I mean, that's a great example where, and I've told people this so many times, they say, you know, I'm all stuffed up, I don't have any cold medication. I say, go, make, go, go start making some coffee and you'll be amazed at how much your sinuses are clear. And no one ever believes me. This has happened a number of times, oddly enough, uh, on the Twitter from people that I know. Oh, I'm all congested and I don't have any, because people want to tell me that. Or they want to tell the world that. I don't know why that's interesting. You know, just go get yourself some coffee. What do you mean? Just go start making coffee. Come back. I got it, it worked! <laughs> now, it's not like it lasts forever, and it's not like it's the same as taking an antihistamine, but it will clear you up a little bit. That's one example, just of daily life, and you can probably think of others. One of the clinical uses of classical conditioning was developed by a guy named uh, Volpe, South African, and he developed what's called systematic desensitization. Now, systematic desensitization um, is taking the idea of relaxation. That's the first thing. You learn how to relax. So, basically, this is the, the idea of, you know, the guys maybe have even done this, where you tighten up one sort of muscle group and then let it go and learn how that feels and you keep doing that and then you do another muscle group. You can learn in about 20 minutes how to relax. How to really, and what exactly what it feels like. And then if I say to you, relax, and then you can go back to that state. It's really a pretty easy thing to learn. It's not that hard. Uh, when I took abnormal psych uh, as an undergrad, uh, the prof did this with us with the class and taught, taught it. She turned the lights low and she taught us this whole relaxation technique. And after about 20 minutes, a, th- a third of the class were asleep. You know, now it was an eight o'clock class, so it might have played a role. But you learn that. Now the next thing you do is say, okay, what are you afraid of? Like, what's your fear? Now, this works with specific phobias. This doesn't work with, I'm afraid to commit in a relationship. That, that's not going to work. Okay? <laughs> this isn't like Oprah kind of stuff. Not that that's, that, that shouldn't denigrate people like that, but I, I don't know. Is that what they talk about in Oprah? I don't know. And then Dr. Oz comes on and tells you to take some herb and then change your chakras. And anyway, um, yeah. I don't think that can't be important. Anyway. Um, so anyway, what happens is you have to be afraid of something specific. Let's say you're afraid of snakes. Now, you might think that's not really a debilitating fear. Well, it is if 
it's to the point where seeing a picture of a snake or me saying the word snake makes your heart race. And real phobias are like that. Right? Uh, an old student back in Cornerbrook who was a, 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 one of my honors students, and she was definitely afraid of sharks. Now, she'd never seen a shark, of course, because they don't come up to Rocky Harbor, Newfoundland, where she's from. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I mispronounced it's Rocky Harbor. And so you know, the sharks start going there. Why would the shark go there? No, of course not. Nonetheless, she's afraid of sharks. She was so afraid of sharks that uh, she worked at the bar, and her boyfriend and I, we were still friends, and what we used to do, in fact, is we would cut pictures of sharks and leave them on the bar, and she'd freak out, and it was fun, and it was kind of mean. So... But you literally couldn't say the word shark around her. Now that's kind of weird, right? And she knew it was weird. She knew it was irrational. She's a psych student, smart woman, but she also knew it was completely irrational. But, and it could get to the point, now it never did with her from what I know, but it could have got to the point where she couldn't even see a fish because of stimulus generalization. Right? Wow. Now that's intense. That's a horrible... Or people, there are people like that, more, it's more like, let's say, spiders or snakes. As I said, sharks is another one. Heights. Public speaking. Right? I've had students that uh, were... I've had honor students that were... That I swear were going to have heart attacks when they were giving their thesis presentations. Because they're so frightened. Even though you tell them, you know you know this worked better than anyone in the world because you did it, Right? But when you have an irrational fear, that doesn't help anyone. So what you do is you say, okay, let's say you're afraid, and we can use the example of, uh, yeah, let's use snakes. So we have something like, for example, uh, not even this. Let's think of something that's similar. Okay, how about a, a plate of a spaghetti that has some characteristics with, in common with a snake? And we say, okay, that's the least frightening thing. And then next will be a dead earthworm. Okay, dead earthworm. And then next is a living earthworm. And next is an earthworm crawling around your hand. And next, well, how about this? Uh, This isn't mine. This is just here, but I'm using it. You see that? This is the kind of, it's like prop comedy, like carrot top. So then you got this. Nobody, nothing. Um, and then you got a snake in uh, an aquarium. And then you got snakes on a plane. Thank you. Now, then you've got, um, I don't know, a snake loose in a room. And then you got handling a snake. And then you got a bunch of snakes crawling on it. That would be horrible. That would be, if you were snake phobic, you know, that might kill you. Probably, it really wouldn't. You might have a really nasty panic attack. Okay, so we built up the, the, this sort of uh, anxiety hierarchy. You've also learned how to relax. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pair those items. Relax is going to be the U.S. The C.S. is going to be the scary thing. We start out with the, with the plate of spaghetti. And I say, okay, relax. You've got to keep looking at that. Relax. Next we go with the earthworm, blah, blah, blah. In about literally three sessions, that means three hours with a therapist, you could have a person handling snakes that three sessions ago would have been freaking out. Or you can have them with a tarantula in their hand if they're afraid of spiders. Or you can have people that have 
are afraid of flying on an airplane, you could have them sitting in an airplane going on a trip, no problem. Or you can have somebody who's afraid of public speaking, you can get them to speak in front of a bunch of strangers on a topic they, have, they were told about 30 seconds ago and don't even have a talk prepared. It works tremendously well. Right? It works really, really well. And that's just simply using classical condition. That's all that is. Yes, please. Is there any difference using um, the method with uh, the object in front of you or uh, using it via hypnosis? Hypnosis does very little, if anything. It, well, it's kind of like, this is kind of like called hypnosis because you're learning, you're, you're very relaxed. All that hip, hypnosis does is it can, um, there's only a couple things it can do. It can work uh, on um, localized pain. I think that's about all it does. Okay. Yeah, like it doesn't do anything. It's fascinating stuff. Like it won't do, um, it won't turn you into a chicken. It won't, um, uh, it doesn't enhance your memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't do any of that stuff. Because having uh, studied hypnosis, actually uh, taken hypnosis course, we've discussed the very same thing. Yeah. With this, this kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, well, basically all this is, is you're learning, it's just relaxation. Right? And you're pairing relaxation with something that used to be nasty. So the person is actually learning that this thing predicts relaxation. Right? That's what they're learning. They're learning that snakes are relaxing. They're learning that public speaking is relaxing. That being on a plane is a relaxing thing. And it works very quickly. This is the beauty of this. The other approach is kind of like this. It's called flooding, which is you just say, oh, you're afraid of heights? Come here. You take them up to the CN Tower and you make them stand right at the edge and hold, push on and say, just stay there for a while. And after, they're going to freak out for a bit. But then eventually they learn what? They learn that standing there predicts nothing bad's going to happen. Right? Oh, you don't like spiders? Here's one. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yep. You wouldn't use you wouldn't use the poison snakes <coughs> to bite. Yeah. Exactly. Would it like would they have to review? I imagine yes. Also, it would probably lead to some lawsuits. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's the kind of thing you sign a lot of waivers for before you sign up. Yeah. But it's cool, and I mean, it, it works, right? So yeah, the opposite of this of systematic desensitization. Oh, sorry. Uh, any other questions on systematic desensitization? There's also aversive counter conditioning. This is not quite as successful, but it has been used, for example, with... It's been tried with pedophiles. Right? Yeah, there are people that are pedophiles that think it's perfectly normal. Those people are wired up wrong. Um, but a lot of people that have sexual attraction to children, don't, they know it's wrong. And they want to change. Now, sometimes these changes are court uh, uh, ordered, but other times it's people literally say, "There's something wrong with me. I can't," you know. So you, there's a couple of ways you can do this. So you do something aversive. So it's a. You show them a picture of a kid, and then you make them smell rotten hamburger. Was a pretty, if you ever smelled rotten beef, it's a pretty nasty smell. Um, 
The other way you can do it is you can show them a picture of a kid like that and you can shock them right in the genitals. Which to me sounds like something we should just do to pedophiles. But um, just, you know, I'm not, just as a thing. Not as any kind of treatment, just like, oh yeah, you think that's funny? Yeah. But that, it, it, the thing is, it, this doesn't work horribly well. It doesn't work horribly well. Uh, it's also been tried with, um, it works a little bit better with sort of fetishes that get in people's way. I'm going to think, well, yeah, that's somebody's personal, yeah, sure. I'm not talking about something you do with the consenting other person or yourself, whatever. That's always consenting with yourself. Unless you're kind of hooked up wrong again. But what if you're so into women's shoes that you break into people's houses and steal their shoes? <laughs> and there are cases like that. Yeah. Now, they're very rare, guys, so I don't want you getting all creeped out thinking there's going to be guys stealing your shoes. But this gave me a good hobby. <laughs> oh, that, no, yeah, you're creeping me out. Um, but yeah, this, this is a real thing. This does happen. Or they steal like women's underwear or their, or their dressers. Right? These guys are actually pretty harmless, but they're creepy and I don't want them in my house. That's the idea. And that, that's... So what do you do? You, 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 again, you pair pictures of shoes and actual shoes with something really aversive. Right? It doesn't work that well. But it works probably uh, way better than just trying to talk about their mother and their childhood. Which doesn't really work at all. And finally, I mentioned flooding, which is the idea of literally throwing someone into a situation that they would find horribly fear-inducing and let the fear continue until it's gone. And then you actually do almost collapse with relaxation. The reason is your fighter, your epinephrine. Um, and then you learn that that is, that is predicting something exactly the opposite of, of excitement. Right? I will say, though, that systematic sensitization, this works tremendously well. Dave? Yeah? I have a question about systematic. Yeah, please. Um, I, I don't know if I just forgot the relaxation part, or maybe, yeah, that's probably the case, but does it work if you just show them the gradual kind of hierarchy, or is the relaxation half? I think the relaxation is a big part of it, but, I mean, I'm no clinician. But everything I've read, I mean, I remember, I remember reading the Wolfie paper, jeez, it's 1969 or something? But I didn't read it then, it was four. But um, we were reading that as an undergrad, and the, the relaxation part is a key part of it. But it may be the case that you could do what you're talking about as a version kind of a flooding almost, you know, but you're working your way up. Yeah, yeah. The great thing about it is it works. I mean, that's, that's, it's all, the, the easiest thing for a, for a therapist to deal with is a phobia. And I don't mean like agoraphobia or something like that, or like I said, a fear of commitment. Those, those aren't, I mean like specific phobias. Right. Other questions about this stuff? Okay, good. So let's move on, because that's the move around. So we'll get a little bit into the theory stuff. Let's not have all the tests that I'm going to be giving up. Everyone in the ship will throw it on the test. Let's all Because if I don't, and that's not fair to, well, it's fair to you, but it's not fair to them. So, okay, so let's just see how I do this. All right. So, this is more current stuff about 
uh, classical condition that's been talking about, probably for the next uh, while. So, the number of pairings, when we've talked about this, right, that the idea of the more pairings, it goes back to Brown's principles, doesn't it? The more pairings um, is an important variable. And it may, in fact, be the all-important variable, the number of CS plus pairings you get. So shouldn't that be the case that it's the most important thing? The number of pairings is, is one of the key variables. Well, then I'd like you to explain blocking to me, or Cayman blocking, as it's called. And you're saying to me, Dave, I don't even know what that is. How should I? How could I explain it to you? Well, let me explain it to you. Okay. Cayman, 1968. Uh, that's what she did. It's pretty cool. We got two groups, control and blocking. Let's look at the control group first. Very straightforward. Phase one, nothing happens. So there's your rats, nothing happens. This is all done with CER, by the way. Um, phase two, they get a light and tone compound stimulus. Okay, it's a light and a tone at the same time. Light comes on and the tone comes on at the same time. The CS is a shock because we're using um, CS is a shock. I should say US is a shock. Yeah, the US is a shock. Okay. These are the CS. It's the light and tone. The US, which is what the plus means, is a shock. I know you say shock is a plus. No, I, that's it's just a US. It's a notation. Now we test the animals with. The tone alone, which is a fine film starring Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> that was Home Alone. Um, with the tone alone, and we get a CR. We do this with conditioning of emotional response. We get a nice conditioned response. It works out fine. We get suppression. Simple. That's easy, right? Remember, we got light and tone together. We test with tone by itself. The blocking group gets the following. A bunch of trials of light plus. In other words, light predicts shock. Light predicts shock. Then they get the same number of pairings as this group with light and tone together, predicting shock again. Then we test them with the tone by itself, and they don't respond. So with their conditioned emotional response, they in fact keep just pushing the bar as much as they were when there was no stimulus. We get a suppression ratio of none. Huh. Wow. That is wild stuff. So do you understand the experiment? Before we go on, do you understand the experiment? Questions? You're good? Oh, yeah, uh, sorry. So the control group does respond to it? Yeah. Because okay. yep. they get a CR. 
And of course, because it's CER, they actually aren't responding, which is a conditioned response, right? Because they stop pushing the bar so much. So, you know. But we're, let's worry about this as far as sort of more theoretically. This was done with conditioned emotional response because, again, excuse me, with CER, you can actually measure something. You get a number. Other questions? Does that make sense? Do you understand the experiment? It's a pretty neat experiment. Okay. And it flies in the face of everything because, look, both groups got the same number of pairings of tone and plus. Yet, this group hasn't learned anything about the tone. They've learned nothing about that tone. Same number of tone shock pairings in both groups. So it's obviously not just the number of pairings, is it? Because if it was, they should be... And by the way, when this first came out in 1968, people went, well, that's not true. <laughs> they, they went and went to their own labs and tried it and went, okay, it is. doesn't make any freaking sense, but it's a thing. Now, here's the reasoning. The tone predicts nothing in the blocking group. When I say, it does, no, does, does it predict nothing? Objectively, no. It actually predicts that there's going to be a shock. But to the animal, it doesn't predict anything extra. The animal's already learned that the light predicts the shock. So the tone is, in fact, irrelevant. You don't need the tone to predict the shock. You've already got the light. It's redundant. It doesn't do any, it doesn't have any extra predictive value. The animal already can predict the shock just fine, thank you. So, questions about that? Does it make some sense? Yeah, please. Just going to ask you, so when in the first phase, when they're getting the light, are they getting shocked too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the light's going to get shocked. Mm -hmm. And the other one, they're not getting shocked. That's right. The, the other groups get nothing happens. Oh. They're not even put in a box. Oh, oh well, I'm sure there were like 27 control groups that someone will put in a box. But, yeah. Do you understand this phenomenon, the idea of blocking? Okay. This led to the Rescorla Wagner model, and there's Rescorla and Wagner. Uh, they came up with this when they were in graduate school. They were not a lot older than you guys are. Okay, these guys were in their mid 20s when they came up with this. And it's freaking brilliant. Actually, I didn't. <laughs> this is it's a mathematical model. It's an exceedingly simple mathematical model. Okay? And we won't even get to the math today. Don't worry about it. So you won't have to do any math on the come upcoming test. So it is a mathematical model. And it's a trial-by-trial trial model. So what it does is it calculates the amount of learning on each trial. <clears throat> Okay. So it says what so it's not looking at it over time like that one I was talking about with Randy Gallistel's model, which is this thing about probabilities. This is calculating things trial by trial. 
This assumes you can get excitatory conditioning, inhibitory conditioning, or no conditioning on any given trial. And it's all based on what the condition stimulus predicts. Okay, what does the condition stimulus predict? That's what this is all about. Ah, excuse me. Okay, so let's look at some rules. Oh, we'll, we'll, this, eventually, all these things can be summarized down into a very simple equation, but there are a set of rules that, that, make, that, that you can lay out to understand the uh, model itself. So, the strength of the U.S. is greater than the expected excited, then you get excitatory conditioning. So the strength of the U.S. is greater than expected. You get excitatory conditioning. So in other words, the first thing that I've been talking about this all along, when the CS comes on and the animal has never experienced the CS-US pairing, what does it expect when it gets the CS? It expects nothing. And it gets something. We can almost quantify that and say it gets 100% of the U.S. So there's a huge amount of learning on the first trial because the difference we would have expected, which is nothing, what it got was 100%, is huge. Okay? If the strength of the U.S. is less than expected, you get inhibitory condition. So let's say the animal expects to get it's learned everything completely. It gets a CS and it expects to get the U.S., get 100% of the U.S., but this time you give it nothing. You're going to get a big drop-off in conditioning because it now, you get, on that trial, you have inhibitory learning, inhibitory conditioning. And the larger discrepancy between what is observed and what is expected, the greater the conditioning. Either way, excitatory or inhibitory. So the larger the discrepancy between what is observed and what is expected, the more learning you get. This again explains why you get the most learning on the first trial. It explains the shape of an acquisition curve. Right? Because they all go up and then asymptote. Questions so far? Okay. The more salient the CS, the more conditioning you get. What's that mean? Salient just means uh, the brighter the light, the louder the noise, whatever. Now, this obviously can be taken to extreme. You wouldn't take it to the extreme point of saying, what if the light's so bright that it destroys the animal's retina? Will it learn anything then? Well, no, it'll just learn that you're a dick. <laughs> but it's, you know, so it's not going to learn anything there. If it's so loud, the animal's eardrums explode, it's not going to learn anything, obviously. But as a rule, the, more, the brighter or more salient and I, the stimulus, the more learning will happen on that trial. Well, that makes some sense, doesn't it? Also sounds a great deal like one of Thomas Brown's rules, doesn't it? About the liveliness of a stimulus. Right? If you get two CSs together, like in our blocking example, 
their strength, the amount that the animal learns about both of those two things is additive. So if it's learned, and you'll see, well, after our break and all that stuff, but that you quantify these sort of things. So if the, if, if the animal has learned, you know, on a trial, 0.2 about the light and 0.1 about a tone, then a light tone compound stimulus is going to be 0.3 is what it's learned. Like, it's additive. It's a completely additive model. There's, no, there's nothing non-additive. It's a model of surprise. This is going to be a mathematical model of surprise. Because the more surprised the animal is, the more it learns. The more surprised the animal is, the more it learns. Which just actually makes a great deal of sense. And they come up with, and we're never, like I said, I'm not going to get to the math today for sure. Because uh, we need time to go over that as a group kind of thing. But you'll see when we do get to the math that it's, it's, it's actually beautiful and elegant the way this thing works. Okay. Questions though? You understand the idea? It's pretty straightforward. Okay. The, this model makes actually some really neat predictions. It predicts the shape of the acquisition curve because the animal learns the most when the discrepancy between what it expects and what it gets is, is the greatest, that's going to be on the first trial, it's going to learn the most. In other words, it predicts that an acquisition curve should be shaped like that. And it is. It predicts blocking. Now, the way it predicts blocking means you have to actually understand a little bit about the model, and I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to show the math yet, but there is only so much, well, put it this way, all, the amount of predictive, pow predictive power, if we start out with, uh, what was the example, we had light and then light tone, yeah? Okay. What's happened here is the predictive power available for light like it's, it's, it's already conditioned to light. When we get to here, it might learn something about tone, but it's already learned a great deal about light. It's learned so much about light, perhaps, that it can't learn anything about tone because it's not being surprised here anymore. There's no surprise. When light and tone together predict a shock, there's no surprise because you know that light predicts a shock. So what's the animal learn about the tone? Nothing. Nothing. It makes complete sense now that condition, conditioned inhibition works. Right? Because we have a, a CS plus and a CS minus, we put them together and we get a certain response or lack thereof. Huh. Predicts overshadowing. Um, the hell's overshadowing? Overshadowing is when you have two stimuli, and one is more salient than the other. Okay? And the more salient stimulus, the animal learns more about the more salient Ooh. stimulus than the less salient stimulus. 
Okay? So if a light is brighter than a tone is loud, the animal will learn more about the light. But this makes sense because the model, those assumptions I talked about, those rules set, it learns more with more salient stimulus. It also predicts something called over-expectation. And in fact, this was one of the things that when the model came out, people played with it and said, well, it says this will happen, and there's no way this is going to happen. It's called the over-expectation effect. And it works like this. We have an experimental group, control group. Let's look at the control group. We got, these are separate trials. These aren't compound stimuli. This is light. U.S. tone U.S. In phase two, the control group gets nothing, and then we predict. Then we give it the light or the tone, and we get a nice strong condition response. So this is exactly what you'd expect would happen. We've done discrete trials. Some half of them light plus, and the other half tone plus. Okay. Then we test it with light. And tone, light and or tone, so that they're they're discrete. Nice strong condition response. Experimental group, same thing at the beginning, light plus tone plus. Then we do a compound stimulus, light and tone together, and plus. Again, note how you're getting more pairings with this group than you are with this group. Then we predict we do these by themselves, and we get a weaker CR. Wait, how? What? Well, again, I will show you after you had your test and then after Thanksgiving and such with how the math works on this. But let's just think of it this way. Let's pretend instead of this is always done with CER, okay? And this isn't CER. But the example we're going to use is going to be CER. Let's say that light. Let's say the plus isn't a foot shock and it's CER. Let's say it's 10 food pellets. Okay? Light predicts 10 food pellets. Tone predicts 10 food pellets. Whole bunch of those. What's the animal expect when it gets light and food pellets? What does it expect when it gets tone? It predicts 10, 10 food pellets. What does it expect when it gets light and tone together then? 20. should expect 20 because it's additive. Right? But what does it get? It gets 10. Now we get inhibitory conditioning to light and tone, even though we have more pairings of light and in our bizarre little example, 10 food pellets. But because it's getting now less than it expects, we get inhibitory conditioning with twice the number of pairings. <laughs> and when, people, when this model first came out, people sit, played with it, and did the math and said, well, yeah, like that's going to, and it does. It's exactly what happens. Right? See, the world doesn't actually work like this. So one of the neat things about a model like this is it talks about how a mechanism, and it doesn't have to worry right away, or at all really, about function, about evolutionary angles to things. It's actually a great mechanism. Surprise is a great way to learn Right? And you should learn the most when you're surprised the most. That makes complete sense. You should learn the most when something's uh, brighter or louder. It makes complete sense. But one of the 
things that'll fall out of a model like that is under a contrived situation like this, you get a weaker response. Now you might say, well, well, it's contrived then. Yeah, but it shows that the model's probably true. It shows that you're probably hooked up the way the model says. This doesn't happen in nature. So it's not something you go, well, then why does this, why would something like this have evolved? Well, of course it could because this doesn't happen in nature. The world doesn't work this way. But the cool thing is, and this was the thing, when, like I said, people, when they, when they published the model, people looked at this and said, no, that's stupid. And plus, look at this. <laughs> yeah. And then it works just like this. Very cool. Very cool. So it's actually, I mean, it's, it's a really neat setup. And again, it's something that has been done. The blocking thing shows up in only vertebrates. Has it shown up in inverts that I know of? People have tested it, doesn't seem to work. I'm like bees. Don't know why. I don't know about over-expectation being done in something other than rats, actually. But I imagine it would work in other words. There's always been. All right. Questions about this? All right. Remember, you have a test. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. 
Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.